You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. Tonight's episode of The Twilight Zone is not only one of the more popular and well-known of the series' run, but it also encapsulates what a lot of people hold dear about Rod Serling's Fifth Dimension. It's an episode that provides a certain feeling and a certain state of mind. It's an episode that should be watched alone, in the dark. It's an episode that many will remember from staying up late at night and catching the midnight replays frightened by any sound that may bump while watching the episode. It's an episode that, many will claim, is the scariest corner of the Twilight Zone. So turn off the lights, grab a cushion to hide behind, and join Marsha White as she heads to the ninth floor in Rod Serling's tale of terror, The After Hours. Express elevator to the ninth floor of a department store carrying Miss Marsha White on a most prosaic, ordinary, run-of-the-mill errand. Ninth floor. There must be some mistake. There's nothing here. Miss Marsha White on the ninth floor. Specialties department, looking for a gold thimble. The odds are that she'll find it. But there are even better odds that she'll find something else. Because this isn't just a department store. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 10th of June, 1960. Written by Rod Serling and directed by our old friend Douglas Hayes. Now, when people look back at the Twilight Zone with 21st century analysis, they tend to think of it as an incredibly forward-thinking show, but one of the most common complaints and criticisms about the show as a whole was its portrayal of women. Perhaps it was the chauvinistic attitudes at the time, but usually within the Twilight Zone, female characters are either the object of affection, simple plot devices, or droll wives who hold their husbands back. In the last couple of episodes we've covered, we've seen women being so annoying they need to die, or just something for a suicidal man to aspire to have. However, this isn't the case with Marsha White. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickrey writes, There's an energy about her, and a freshness, and individuality. Her performance is exciting, her reactions genuine. Marsha White was played by Anne Francis, who, like a lot of actors in the Twilight Zone, was very busy with regular work on TV shows. There are a couple of items that jump off her IMDb page, and she had various bit parts across the usual shows that we've talked about before on this podcast. But perhaps she is best known stateside for the 1960s TV series Honey West, in which Francis played the titular high-tech private detective. It was a show that never aired in the UK, so I don't really have a frame of reference, but she will certainly be known worldwide for her performance in the 1956 sci-fi cult classic Forbidden Planet, a film that has several connections to the Twilight Zone. She would have one more appearance in the series in the season 4 episode Jezebel, but sadly she passed away at the age of 80 due to complications with pancreatic cancer in 2011. 
Douglas Hayes said that she was unbelievably good in the role and apparently she would often have people come up to her in the streets to let her know that The Twilight Zone was their favourite show. You know, I have to agree with Zikri and Hayes on this one. Anne Francis is really great as Marcia, and we'll discuss this a bit more as we go on, but you really feel for her as she's thrown into this bizarre situation and Hayes' direction really ramps up that tension. So Marsha has been brought to the ninth floor, which appears to be the loft warehouse space of the department store. It's completely empty, very dark, and it carries a foreboding sense of peril. If you've ever worked in a store like this, then you'll be familiar with these sorts of spaces. During my teen years, I worked in my local supermarket, and it had a huge warehouse which you always found had people wandering around gathering stock. But there was one area which was where the confectionery was kept, and it always felt away from everything else. It was a stark contrast to not only the hustle and bustle of Saturday shoppers, but the rest of the warehouse. I would be lying if I said it was scary or spooky, but it did have a different atmosphere to the rest of the supermarket. A lot like where Marsha is right now. Only, she discovers that she isn't actually alone, as she's greeted by a saleswoman who has the gold thimble she's looking for. Oh, that's odd. What is Marsha? Well, you haven't any merchandise here at all. Except the thimble. Except the very thing I needed. Oh, the whole floor, it looks so empty and... You called me Marsha. Did I? I'm sorry. That was forward of me. I apologize. How did you know my name? I've probably seen you around the store. No, you haven't. I've never seen you. Now, look, I don't want to make a big thing out of this, but what kind of a place is this? I mean, all I want is one small item, a gold thimble. I come up on a floor that hasn't a single thing in evidence except what I'm looking for. Well, you may be a little more sophisticated than I am, but this I call odd. Please come again. Anytime. What really works about the after hours is Rod Serling taking advantage of the fear of the unknown. It's not what you do see, it's what you don't see. What is suggested rather than stated. Serling was once quoted as saying that the fear of the unknown is the scariest fear of all. This first encounter with the saleswoman, played by Elizabeth Allen, carries a very ominous tone, but nothing is ever fully spelled out. Serling's script and Hayes' direction gradually build slowly and purposefully with great effect. It's an already odd setting with a creepy atmosphere, but it's when the saleswoman says Marsha's name that the mood shifts from creepy into sinister. As you would expect, and I guess as anyone would be, Marsha is clearly panicked by the situation, but the saleswoman remains calm at all times, as if she wasn't real at all. However, this mood is suddenly taken in a rather different direction. Marsha discovers in the elevator that the thimble is scratched and no good for a present, so she is directed to the third floor for complaints, where the episode moves from this creepy and unnerving journey into a one woman's fears of the unknown, to a couple of mid-level managers who essentially recount the opening 10 minutes of the episode. Not only that, but the writing and performances have more in common with Are You Being Served than the terrifying atmosphere created earlier. Well, I, I distinctly told her that all the gold thimbles we have are in gifts, and that if the item were damaged, well, we, we certainly would make it good, either by replacement or refund. Oh, I distinctly told her that, Mr. Sloan. Then what is the problem, Mr. Armbruster? Well, the problem is that the customer claims that she didn't get the item in gifts. She got it in another department. Mr. Armbruster, 
Just tell her to take it back to the department where she purchased the item. Well, well, that's just the point. She has some idiotic story about having purchased a gold thimble on the ninth floor. <laughs> ninth floor? Mr. Armbruster. I trust you inform the lady that this store has no ninth floor. Mr. Sloan, believe me, sir, I have tried desperately. I really mean desperately to acquaint her with this fact, but she still insists that she was taken to the ninth floor and waited on by a rather odd woman. An odd woman yet. Hmm. A personality trait that she would be particularly knowledgeable about. Well, anyway, this woman who allegedly waited on her. Uh, Never mind, Armbruster. I'll talk to her. Yes, yes. Well, well she's, she's waiting. <laughs> it is an odd shift in tone, but... I do think that the episode's strength outweigh this negative that can probably be overlooked and ignored. To be honest, it's not the content of the scene that's the problem. Often within the Twilight Zone, episodes will have scenes like this to help keep the audience up to speed with what's happened already, but to also help fill the 22-minute runtime. I think that people tend to forget this scene exists when talking about the After Hours being the scariest episode they ever saw, but had the characters not been so wacky and over the top, the scene wouldn't have felt so out of place. With that said, there is a part of this segment that I do like, and it's when Mr. Armbruster tells Miss Kivers to get rid of Marsha. <laughs> what I'd like to give her is a bus ticket. A one-way bus ticket to any department store west of Cleveland. Preferably Chicago or Los Angeles or Honolulu. <laughs> I don't know why, but that delivery does get a chuckle out of me. So, as the pair explain to Marsha that there isn't a ninth floor, she spots the saleswoman who sold her the thimble, but upon closer inspection, we get our first reveal that it's not actually the saleswoman, but a mannequin that looks a lot like her. I was taken to the ninth floor. I was waited on by a very odd woman. I paid cash. Your receipt? My receipt? I, I didn't get a receipt, but I paid cash. I gave her a $20 bill and a $5 bill. She gave me this thimble and I... Well, there she is. There's a woman who waited on me, miss. Miss, I wonder if you'd... We've seen people being frozen in place on the Twilight Zone already with the episode Elegy, and we will see it again a couple of more times in the series' run. In Elegy, they simply used extras to stand in place and act frozen, which is cheap, but ineffective. No matter how still you stand, there is always going to be some form of movement. Eyes blinking, chests moving from breathing, etc. While it's ineffective, you can at least forgive Elegy, as they are supposed to be humans posed in a cemetery, but... The After Hours is different, as they are all supposed to be mannequins. In the Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton says, I was very concerned about that one being technically good, because I felt it would fall right on its face if those models weren't awfully good. And we debated whether to have Anne Francis do it herself in some sort of frozen pose, and we talked about waxing her face and doing a lot of things to make her look like a mannequin, but we felt that wouldn't work. I remember going round and round on how to make that so solid that no one would laugh at it or say, oh, I caught them doing their tricks. So rather than having Anne Francis, Elizabeth Allen and John Conwell stand in place pretending to be mannequins, they actually made mannequins of them, 
They took plaster molds of the three main actors and then painted them with acrylics to look like them and then attached those to mannequin bodies. It may not seem like the most ingenious method and perhaps it's the most obvious, but it is an incredibly successful practical effect and the payoff reveal of the saleswoman and Marsha at the end of the episode are very chilling. I think we can all agree it was the best choice they could have made for the episode. As a result of the shock of seeing the mannequin, Marsha passes out and is resting in Mr. Armbruster's office, but through a series of mishaps, the store is closed and she is forgotten about. When she wakes up, she finds herself in the department store, late at night, alone, in the after hours. What follows is one of the true high points of the Twilight Zone in terms of direction, acting, and atmosphere. Marsha wanders around the department store, which, while full of products, clothes, and accessories, feels empty and cold. The once busy sound of commerce has now been replaced with deafening silence. She calls out for help, but gets no response. She looks for signs of life, but finds nothing. As her panic begins to grow, she starts to hear her name being called out. Marsha. Marsha? 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 She turns to see who it was that called out to her, but she sees only mannequins. Mannequins that stare back at her blankly, yet it always feels as though they are always watching. As the name calling grows louder and louder, Marsha becomes more and more frightened. Before she can calm herself down to try and rationalise what is happening, one of the mannequins reaches out for her. She runs in terror, terrified what might come next, and suddenly, she finds the saleswoman from the ninth floor. Forgive an observation, but you're acting like a silly child. Marsha being tormented in the store, which is clearly what the episode is most remembered for, works so well due to a combination of things coming together perfectly. The start of the sequence features no music, which really adds to the chilling vibe and atmosphere, and Anne France's performance escalates at such a natural level that nothing about it feels forced. It's really solid work from her and ranks among the best scared performances of the show. Douglas Hayes' masterful direction is great and when you look at his track record of Twilight Zone episodes, you could make the argument that he was the finest director the show ever had. The location of the department store was actually inherited from a feature film and it's true that the location really does help the atmosphere. It's something we'll look back to when we discuss the 80s revival version later but Hayes uses the space well, and it makes it feel very large, while still keeping it claustrophobic. So it turns out that Marsha is a mannequin, and the saleswoman reminds her that they each get a month off from being a mannequin to go visit the real world, just so long as they come back. Remember now, coming back to you? That's odd. It's really odd, but suddenly I seem to... Remember, coming back now, is it? 
I'm a mannequin. That's what I am. I'm a mannequin. And it was my turn to... Your turn to leave us for a month. Becoming much clearer now, isn't it? You left us for a month and you lived with the outsiders. But you were due back yesterday and you didn't show up. You know, Marsha, that's very selfish, my dear. All of us wait our turn and we simply do not overstay it. Oh. It was my turn starting last night. I'm one day delayed already. Of course. Of course, I'm sorry. I forgot. When you're on the outside, everything seems so normal. As if... As if what, Marcia? As if we were like the others. Like the outsiders. Some of the complaints and criticisms geared towards this episode have been focused on the perhaps unsatisfying conclusion after such a great build of tension and Serling and Hayes taking advantage of the unknown, it turns out the unknown actually isn't that sinister at all. For me, I think it's a good twist. Not great, but certainly good. Had the episode not had that nail-biting final third, there is a chance that the After Hours might only be remembered as an average episode. But, as I said earlier, everything came together so well and it opens and closes so brilliantly that I think the twist works for the story. There are logic holes, sure, but it ties together nicely. While doing my research for this episode, I came across this blog post from a website called The Ambiguities titled Women in the Twilight Zone, who had some interesting ideas behind the character of Marsha White. The writer didn't sign their name at the end of the piece, but I think it was written by a chap named Will Hansen who writes, a few months before The Twilight Zone first aired in 1959, Barbie was introduced to the American marketplace. Whether or not Serling and or his wife bought the dolls for their daughters, it's pretty obvious he noticed her appearance, because look, Marsha White, our protagonist in the After Hours, is Barbie. Marsha White in this episode is the desirable image, the advertisement brought to life. She is, in a way, her own doppelganger, her own uncanny self. This episode is ahead of its time in the way in which it points out how often such images encourage women to pursue an impossible body, an impossible image of perfection. Welcome back to the fold of the mannequins at the end of the episode, Marsha says it was ever so much fun to be a person, an outsider, and yet she is relieved to be back in the store among her fellow mannequins, with no decisions to make, frozen, displaying the store's wares. Some interesting ideas there, it must be said. I'm not sure you could read that deeply into the episode, but I suppose that's what makes the Twilight Zone so compelling. The After Hours would be explored again in the 80s revival series of the Twilight Zone. You know, that series was what it was, and I tend to go back and forth on my opinions of it. It had its moments, but I think it just didn't come together often enough. Maybe I'll look at it once I finish this podcast, but perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. The 80s revival version of The After Hours is very different to the 1960s original and it focuses more on the obvious horror rather than the suggested terror. In this version, Marsha, played by Terry Farrell, best known for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, is in a single shop of a mall rather than a whole department store and quite quickly it becomes obvious that the saleswoman is a mannequin as she starts to chase Marsha along with a fellow mannequin, making the episode feel a lot more like a slasher movie than a Twilight Zone episode. Despite being filmed in a full-sized mall, the director, Bruce Malmoth, doesn't seem to get any mileage out of it. 
the episode runs out of steam pretty quickly and it just isn't effective as its predecessor. However, the idea of Marsha slowly turning back into a mannequin as she tries to escape was quite creative and, with better direction, could have been a really frightening image or thought, but sadly the episode just doesn't work and it feels a lot more campy and silly even if they were going for horror, much like the ending of Silent Night Deadly Night 5, The Toymaker. So, with Marsha now back home, we cut to the next day where Mr. Arm Brewster is going about his usual business, only he spots a mannequin that has a striking resemblance to a certain customer. Marsha White in her normal and natural state. A wooden lady with a painted face, who one month out of the year takes on the characteristics of someone as normal and as flesh and blood as you and I. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Just how normal are we? Just who are the people we nod our hellos to as we pass on the street? A rather good question to ask, particularly in the Twilight Zone. So that was the After Hours, my first iconic episode in the Twilight Zone podcast. You know, when I first took over the Twilight Zone podcast, Tom and I talked about the importance of listener feedback. And as I said last week, it's great to get a different opinion and view on this series that we love so much. With that said, it's time to resurrect a segment that Tom started during his time on the Twilight Zone podcast, a segment called Submitted for Your Approval. This first from Jamie Dodds about tonight's episode of The After Hours, which he said is his favourite episode of all time. Jamie writes, I think the most fascinating aspect of this episode concerns the fact we don't know much about Marsha's life as a mannequin or her outside life at the department store. Was she in love? Did she have people she lived with? Did she even have a career? Some of these questions are answered in the comic book adaptation which I recommend highly. It even includes a scene at the end of the sales lady leaving the store and setting out for her month of living a human life. In my opinion, one of the standout scenes of the whole episode is Marsha accepting her destiny and changing. I think Anne Francis does this flawlessly, and it's possibly alongside the 16mm Shrine's Ida Lupino's performance as the greatest TZ female performance. Thanks for that, Jamie. Some really good thoughts there. The comic book adaptation is certainly interesting, and I have to agree with you about Anne Francis' performance. I've not read the comic in quite some time, but if it's the one that I am thinking of, uh, I might have to pick that one up and have another read of it. And next up we have Steve, who left this on the Twilight Zone Network, who disagrees with my views on The Chaser. Steve says, First, this is a fine episode that easily belongs in the upper half of the series. I'm almost tempted to say that it qualifies as an iconic episode, as it is well-remembered, well-written, well-directed, well-acted, and it has a good twist. It gets bonus points for being one of the few episodes in which the humour works well. Luke points out that we don't get the backstory for the relationship between Roger and Leela. As Luke acknowledges, this story has to be told in 22 minutes, so there is no time to waste on unimportant details. We, the audience, accept it as it is, and it's not as if we're unaware of the ubiquity of unrequited love. Indeed, this script is a masterful demonstration of saying more with less, and our imaginations fill in the marvellous and terrifying details. By contrast, consider Luke's stated preferences for both the original short story by John Collier and the 1991 Tales from the Crypt remake titled Love to Death. Luke isn't happy not knowing the backstory in this teasy episode, but there is much less backstory in the short story. Love to Death is a cheaply crafted sex and horror version of this story, featuring a completely ridiculous evil landlord. 
I'm so glad I didn't grow up watching TV in the 80s and 90s. The only fault with this script, and I'm sad to say it is a major one that could have easily been fixed, is when Mr. Demon offers the glove cleaner to Roger as a preferred remedy to his problem of unrequited love. How could killing the woman he loves solve the problem at this stage? It makes no sense, even if we consider that Mr. Demon has a very dark side. Steve also mentioned some of the humorous moments that work for him, so thanks for your comments there, they're really good. One of the reasons I wanted to encourage listener feedback is because it's great to hear different opinions on an episode like this. I disagree that the characters' backstories are unimportant, as we really need them to make them actual characters as opposed to baseless avatars who say lines. You know, even something small would have done, which is why I actually do prefer the Tales from the Crypt version. Their characters are given admittedly brief histories, but it does make their relationship feel genuine. Furthermore, we're given a montage sequence of what their relationship is like once the love potion has been applied, which then gives further cadence to the reason to kill her, something the chaser really could have done with. Unlike Mark Zickery, I'm personally not that keen on the short story on which it's based, as it feels like a short scene from a much bigger picture, like we're given Act 2 without 1 or 3. But thank you for the feedback, Stephen, it's really appreciated, and Stephen also left some thoughts on A Passage for Trumpet, which we'll look at on the next podcast. So if you want to get in touch, like Stephen and Jamie, send me an email to luke at thetwilightzonenetwork.com or leave a comment on the twilightzonenetwork.com website. You can find us on facebook.com forward slash twilightzonenetwork and on twitter at twilightzonenet. And if you want to contact me directly, you can find me on twitter at lukewritestuff and you can see my other work at flickerymyth.com and lukewritestuff.wordpress.com. And speaking of the next podcast... I wanted to get through season one before I ended up missing an episode, but I'm covering Sundance London this week, uh, which means that I might be late in posting up the episode The Mighty Casey. But in the meantime, I do have a podcast extra that will go up next Monday, so there at least will be something in your podcast feeds. So that's all from me tonight. When we return next time, we'll be looking at the rather tragic tale of The Mighty Casey, an episode that has a production that is more interesting than the episode itself. But until then, take care. Bye-bye.